Hey folks, Norm here. Ever wonder how an episode of the Drabblecast gets made from start to finish? Well, wonder no more, my friends. We bring you a Drabblecast relaunch prelaunch episode this week that originally aired on Drabblecast's paid premium content feed, Drabblecast B-Sides, our behind-the-scenes, inside Drabblecast audio fiction workshop. Maybe you've thought about recording or doing something fun with audio yourself. Well, I pull in all the smarty-pants people I know here in the fields of voice acting, full cast production, sound editing, mixing, gear, foley effects, and more. Eh, not really into that stuff. No biggie. We put this together with you in mind as well. That's right, you, Cheryl. Think of this just as a lifted veil, then, to what all really goes on behind the scenes at the Drabblecast to bring you high-quality story production each week. You might learn a thing or two. Or maybe you won't, dummy. (laughs) That's okay. Have a good time. Just a reminder, we're still in our Drabblecast relaunch-prelaunch phase for another month, leading into our Kickstarter campaign in September, which you'll be hearing about more soon. And then, folks, then Drabblecast is reborn, baby. Let's keep you in the loop, huh? Go to our website, drabblecast.org, and clunk in your email address there where it says, join the mailing list. We won't send you spam or anything annoying. We just want to make sure you know what's coming up. And if my car breaks down again like it did last week, I just want to make sure I can reach out and bum a ride. No biggie. Cheryl. While you're on our website, slapping that email addy in there, scroll right below and you'll enjoy our full backlog of episodes by clicking the link, Download Your Way Through the Archives. 378 glorious adventures to be had there, folks, totally free. And finally, if you enjoy this relaunch, prelaunch content and you want to help us even get going as we approach our Kickstarter, you can donate to the Drabblecast there on our website as well. Click Support the Cast. And if you sign up for our automated $10 a month subscription, you get access to our Drabblecast B-Sides complete archive as well. Premium content, lots and lots of good stuff there, folks. All right, enough of this. Enjoy the episode. You know, people always stop and ask me, Norm, why aren't you wearing any pants? Well, thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying the show, I tell them. And yes, we do pride ourselves in always going that extra mile when it comes to audio production. But it's important to remember that the Drabblecast didn't always sound as good as it does today. I mean, a lot's happened since the early days. And the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit! CNN can now project that Barack Obama, 47 years old, will become the president. Oh, I'm really happy for you. I'm let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Hundreds of people are dead after Haiti's most powerful earthquake. Michael Jackson, 50 years old, the king of pop, has died. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of The Drabblecast. The Drabblecast is a weekly short fiction podcast featuring strange stories by strange authors for strange listeners such as yourself. I'm Norm Sherman, your host. The Drabblecast is a podcast that features short stories of all genres, like you never know quite what you're going to get.
podcasting is getting to be a pretty big thing since Apple is kind of taking over the world and making iPhones and iCars and iWhales. And because anyone can make and publish a podcast fairly easy these days, you get a lot of pretty crappy ones. So you just kind of have to dig around for ones that interest you. A lot of big-time authors are even podcasting their novels for free to build up fan bases, and they aren't too hard to find if you look around for them. Shoot me an email at goatkeeper at hotmail.com if you're wondering where to find good story-based podcasts, and I'll point you in some directions. It's that time again. It's the Travel Poetry Corner. Amid the Squid by Norm Sherman. Amid the Squid, I sit and think of reasons to explain. My sitting here among the squid that fall on me like rain. We've been cranking out these shows once a week now for over seven years, and we'd like to think we've learned a thing or two about producing fiction and audio along the way. And as someone once said, right this second, give a man a cow, he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to cow. And you've probably just invented some crazy new dance all the kids are going to start doing called the cow. This little behind-the-scenes look at the Dravelcast's audio production practice and philosophy might serve as a sort of workshop for those of you involved in some facet of the vast and growing field of audio fiction. Those of you thinking about making your own story podcast, recording your own audiobook, who knows? Or maybe it'll just be a fun backstage pass for you, seeing how the Drabblecast gets cranked out each week the way it does. Along the way, you'll be hearing from other sages and luminaries in the industry. How exciting! In part one, we take a look at pre-production elements, casting, and narration. And in part two, we talk about music, sound effects, and the art of mixing. And we also answer some of your questions via Twitter and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the ride. Travelcast Audio Fiction Production Chapter 1. Pre-Production and the Experience Wasn't it Adolf Hitler who once said, The hardest part to telling good stories is finding those stories which truly demand the telling. While the answer to that question is most assuredly no, the sentiment behind the statement still highlights the challenge in producing an engaging piece of audio fiction in today's media landscape. A struggle, a comp, if you will, that is certainly not mine alone to bear, but shared by everyone else in the business of telling stories through lips and ears rather than merely the eyes. The Drabblecast gets hundreds of stories submitted to us each month, stories that are often written solid enough and are maybe even weird enough, but are still not quite, as Hitler may or may not, but probably didn't put it, demanding of a telling. It's not that these stories aren't worthy of a telling, you see, just maybe not in this medium or with the Drabblecast's particular way of telling it. See, fiction markets are businesses, and one of the things that all successful businesses have is a unique brand and identity, a distinctiveness that separates them and their product from the competition. So when we say we're looking for weird fiction, we're not just looking for stories that are weird, but for stories that are our kind of weird, and that are also interesting, sharp, original, and technically strong. 
It's a tall order. And so, understandably, most stories in your average clutch of submissions wind up with this fate. Dear author, While we do publish poetry from time to time, we unfortunately have no need for any poems of praise to your or anyone's genitalia. Additionally, while I appreciate the effort made to use different fonts, colors, and caps lock in your poem, I don't feel these effects will translate well into audio. As for the fiction you submitted, there is currently something of a market glut for fan fiction mashing up Heath Ledger's admittedly impressive turn as the Joker in Batman with the notorious horrorcore rap group Insane Clown Posse in the world of Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit. As to the other piece, your 90,000 word science fiction story, our word count limit is 4,000 words, and we will therefore not be able to accept it. Your final submission was not fiction at all, but a personal essay describing your anger and frustration with editors who fail to appreciate your work and a detailed description of what you intend to do to avenge yourself. As we are primarily a venue for speculative fiction, I must reject this piece as well. On a completely unrelated note, I have recently moved to a different house, possibly in another country, and so all further communication should be directed to that address, which I have unaccountably forgotten to include in this missive. Thank you for your interest in our podcast. Sincerely, Nathaniel Lee. Managing Editor. That was Nathan Lee, our Managing Editor, who reads the bulk of the submissions we get and then sends a handful to me to see if the two of us can find some sort of consensus on what to produce. Currently, about one out of every 75 stories we get sent ends up being bought. The rest receive an email from Nathan, like that, to some degree. The other chunk of stories we run on the show are stories we solicit or commission. Stories we pick up from our slush pile are stories we not only think demand our telling, but that we're particularly excited about telling as part of our brand. I know a submission's a winner when the production starts to take shape in my brain as I read the story the very first time. The perfect narrator, the perfect musical scoring in sections. Some vision of the end experience starts to take shape. And that's what we're trying to provide here, of course. Not just a story, but an experience. And all the elements and layers we're talking about here in these two workshop parts, all the tips and technical stuff, everything's in service to the experience, always beginning with that end in mind. A lot of the time, your vision of the experience as a producer will be parallel with the author's, and it's just about reinforcing or bringing out some parts of the story in greater relief. But sometimes the muse randomly farts on you, and you see this opportunity to recast the story in a whole new context or something. Here are some examples of what I'm talking about there from past Drabblecast episodes. You decide if they work or not. Hey there, it's the Sinclairs, your everyday future family. Hey there. It's the Sinclairs, the craziest of neighbors there could be. Apologies All Around was a story about a family of the future and a robot that serves apologies. In text, when I read it the first time, I couldn't get out of my head the idea of this being some hilarious television sitcom from an alternate future universe, even though the text didn't indicate any of this directly at all. Again, it was just the farting of the muse. So we did everything from making sitcom-y type cover art to adding laugh tracks. Daddy, Rachel shouted, there's a robot at the door. Winston Sinclair hoped it wasn't one of those sales bots. They were dang near impossible to get rid of. He picked up Rachel and raised the viewport she had used. The robot was three feet tall, gray, squat, plain looking. All right, robot, what do you want? (laughs) 
It had a cheap, synthesized voice. Are you Winston Sinclair, born February 18th, 2000? Mm, yeah. You worked at Comatech from 2023 to 2026? Honey, don't buy anything. Pardon, Winston Sinclair. I am not here to sell you something. I am not here to buy something. Winston Sinclair, sir, I am here to apologize. In the story Malish by Mike Resnick, Travelcast episode 67, the text of the story brings us a tale of a jockey who makes a deal with the devil. I had just gotten back from watching The Preakness, a horse race in Baltimore, and couldn't shake the idea of producing this one in the style and voice of a racehorse announcer. His name was Malicious, and you can look it up in the American Racing Manual. From ages 2 to 4, he won 5 of his 46 starts, had 7 different owners, and never changed hands for more than $800. His method of running was simple and to the point. He was usually last out of the gate, last in the back stretch, last around the far turn, and last at the finish wire. He didn't have a nickname back then either. Exterminator may have been Old Bones, and Man of War was Big Red. And of course, Equipoise was the chocolate soldier. But Malicious was just plain Malicious. Turns out he was pretty well named after all. It was Santa Anita, February 1935. And this you can't look up in the racing manual, or the Daily Racing Forum chart book, or any of the other usual sources, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. Malicious was being rubbed down by Chauncey McGregor, who'd once been a jockey until he got too heavy. He'd latched on as a groomer because he didn't know anything else but the racetrack. Chauncey'd been trying to supplement his income by betting on the races, but he was no better at picking horses than at riding them. He had a passion for claimers who were moving up in class, which any tout will tell you is a quick way to go broke. Old Chauncey. He was getting mighty desperate. And on this particular morning, he'd stopped rubbing Malicious and put him in his stall, and then started trading low whispers with a gnarly little man who had just appeared in the shed row with no visitor's pass or anything. In the first example, apologies all around, the author Jeff loved what we did with the story and really thought it added to the experience. In the latter, Malish, Mike Resnick wasn't crazy with the style we chose to present the story in. What do you think? Either way, the first thing to take away from this is it's important to keep the dialogue going with the author throughout the whole process. It's a good practice to keep authors from ever being too surprised by anything you did in the production, good or bad. The other thing to take away, and both of these points are only for people producing another author's story in film or audio, is to provide a clause in your contract terms with authors, reserving the right to make slight changes to the story text, if needed, to align the text with any critical production elements. The Drabblecast's contract reads, We reserve the right to make minor copy-editing changes to conform the style of the text to its customary form and usage, or in such instances that serve the production in audio. To ensure that no such changes are made without your approval, we will furnish you, the author, with page proofs of the work in advance of publication. You agree to return such proofs with corrections or approval in no more than 15 days from receipt, or the proofs will be understood to be agreed upon. We try not to freak authors out too much on this subject. We won't buy stories if we feel much has to be changed in the first place. Not much should need to be tampered with. But all sorts of unexpected things can inspire slight, text-related production edits to a story throughout the process. Trust me. 
The partnership between writer and producer isn't a relay where one takes the baton from the other and begins running. It's one where both run together, hand in hand, platonically, professionally, awkwardly. Okay, so you've got a story that demands a telling. Next phase is coming up with an optimistic timeline slash game plan that gives you plenty of contingency and leeway space. Without a timeline and master plan, you'll never be able to communicate deadlines and priorities, and that'll eventually lead to hang-ups and frustration for everyone involved. Not creating and communicating a timeline or work schedule with your peeps is more than just a death sentence for your project. It's a death paragraph, possibly even some sort of attempt at flash fiction. Take the time to save yourself time by planning your shit out, Holmes. Okay, it's time to hit the email and start casting this bad boy. Chapter 2. Casting and Narration It goes without saying that one of the most important things in putting together a story in audio is the act of distancing yourself from the potentially menacing behavior of both sharks and bees. So I won't, and if you're just now tuning in, I haven't. What does bear mentioning, however, is the importance of casting the right folks in your project. Once just the practice of commercial fishermen and nerds dressed up as mages attempting area effect spells with the power of imagination, casting can now be considered a high-priority activity for audio producers and rappers trying desperately to rhyme something with ass-string alike. What? I don't know. This isn't a hip-hop workshop. I can't possibly be expected to know what in the world I meant by that. Casting requires vision and an intimate knowledge of the story. In the old days, and still certainly enough today, you'd advertise a casting call and try to match up strangers who audition for various roles, aligning with the voice actor's voice type and abilities. More and more today, though, as the world flattens out and together we lurch in silence towards the singularity and doubtless immortality within the machine, forever forsaking the memory of light summer rain on your face or the warmth of a lover's touch, today it's more about knowing people and tapping into your little black book of contacts to reach out to them. If you listen to story podcasts and audiobooks online, you'll notice a lot of interconnectivity and reoccurring names circulating about. There's a reason for that. I'll let Abby Hilton, author and producer of the Guild of the Cowrie Catchers audiobook, go into why that is a little more. Hi, this is Abigail Hilton from the Guild of the Cowrie Catchers podcast. Norm plays my most charismatic and most talkative and probably most loved character, <laughs> Sylvia Lemire, from that story. And uh, for casting, for Cowrie Catchers, it's it's been a five-year project, uh, so I, I cast most of the characters a long time ago. I cast all of them from people who were in podcasts that I knew, so I did not make a casting call. I have never done a casting call for Cowrie Catchers, but I, I used podcasters that I listened to, I already knew how their voices sounded, I had some idea of their personalities from their shows, and I knew that they were people that I could uh, I could promote for, even, even though I was asking them to do free work, I could at least promote their podcasts, and I knew that would be valuable to them, as opposed to people that didn't have anything that they were trying to promote that I, I couldn't really do anything for. These were people that I could do something for, they had something I could promote. Then as far as deciding whether I want to continue working with people, um, obviously they're acting. I asked myself whether they could act. That was really important. Most important. 
Secondly, um, could they record their amazing acting in a clean uh, environment where I wouldn't have to do excessive noise removal? Could they use their equipment? So those are kind of the basic two things. Can they act? Can they use their equipment? And then beyond that, for major characters, um, I needed to know that they were reliable and that they finished things. And actually, the presence of a podcast, the fact that all of these people had a podcast or were involved in the podcasting community on other large projects, that was a pretty good indicator to me that they were capable of of following through. So Norm had already been doing Drabblecast for a while. Um, he was clearly capable of keeping a podcast going week to week to week to week. And that was, I felt, a good indicator that he would continue to send me lines in a timely fashion. It was also important to me for the major characters that the voice actor like the character and that they feel at least some empathy with the things that the character thought and said. And obviously I wasn't trying to cast people who were exactly like these characters, but I wanted the voice actor to, to have some empathy with what the character was saying so that they could really get the emotion right. And I feel that people do better work when they're doing work that they enjoy. So I wanted um, people who I thought would actually enjoy playing these parts. So that is how I cast characters. Speaking of finishing things, Norm, please send me the rest of your lines. I actually told Abby if she contributed to this and recorded some thoughts on the matter, I'd send the rest of the lines she needs for me for her book by the end of the week. See how this works? You scratch my back and I get a little weirded out because I don't know you. And then see if there's any projects we can collaborate on. I'd also like to add that voice actor sound quality tends to vary a lot from what you hear in their demos and what you might hear in the finished sound you get from them in your Dropbox. Ask voice actors for demo recordings that are recorded in the same location they'll be reading your story, and recorded with the same gear they'll be reading your story on too if you can, because otherwise you really never know what you might get. If it looks like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, it still might be a serial rapist slash murderer dressed up as a duck, is what I'm trying to say. Best not to let any ducks of the evening in come round knocking late on your door. Narration. Narration is to audio fiction what Tyler Perry movies are to film as a whole, which is to say, the most important part. I'm still going, just making the pregnant pauses longer for dramatic effect, essentially pushing the boundaries of African-American transgender cinema. And speaking of which, we're delighted to have voice actress Veronica Giger on the show to deliver a little sagacity. Non-linear segue. Hi, this is Veronica Jagger, and Norm asked me to give a few words, uh, say a few words, pass along some advice and learned wisdom from someone who reads for other people, or as I like to say, I make funny noises into a microphone to make other people's stories sound awesome. So what have I learned? Well, one of the things that I've learned is that there are some questions that an author and a narrator should agree on, or at least questions and answers that should be had before the recording takes place. So this is some stuff I've picked up from working with authors and some questions that I know as a narrator I need to ask to kind of get the best story told. So first of all, when working with a narrator, the author really should present a basic summary of the work. 
That should include the book's word count and the number of chapters. Now, the reason we ask for the word count is because that allows for an estimate of how many hours the audiobook will take. Now, every narrator should know about their own pace. For me, a thousand words takes about eight minutes to narrate. Knowing the number of chapters can help a narrator determine the number of sessions that it will take to record a book. I know when I record, I try to record a chapter at a time. Now, depending upon the genre of the work, and this goes double, triple, quadruple, what have you, for all of the fantasy, sci-fi, horror, all you lovely Lovecraftian people with your sequential consonants and apostrophes. The author needs to prepare a pronunciation guide for difficult words and terminology. My job as a narrator is to bring the author's work to life, and that can be difficult to do if I'm consistently mispronouncing a main character's name. It's not for me to choose the pronunciation. That's the author's choice. It's up to me to know what it is and to consistently convey that. So a pronunciation guide for character names, locations, and entities can keep those misunderstandings to a minimum and allow for the best narration. Character sketches. Now, I'm not talking the 12-page character bio that says, you know, exactly what your protagonist wants to have for breakfast on Thursday, but I'm talking vocal characteristics. Um, those kinds of character sketches provide a narrator with important information about vocal mannerisms and accents that should be carried through in an audio version. So make sure that the narrator knows if there are accents or tones or vocal affectations that the characters should have. And I know that as an author, most authors will say, well, just read it. That's great. I will read it. I'm going to read it and narrate it. But sometimes it helps to know that up front. It helps to know up front, especially if it's an accent that I have to learn. I don't want to learn it on the fly. I want to learn it, perfect it before I start recording. So make sure you have that ready to give your narrator and to give examples. Now, well, this character needs to sound like Liam Neeson. Okay. If the narrator knows that he or she cannot sound like Liam Neeson, well, you may have to find another narrator. And that's okay. Not every narrator is perfect for every story. That's why you want to get clips and auditions and have that open and frank and honest conversation with your narrator, because at the end of the day, that's the narrator's job to make sure that your story is told in the best possible way. And by the way, from a narration standpoint, not every character needs an accent. You can actually do a lot with tones and shifting, you know, a high pitched voice and a low pitched voice and ways to deliver words patterns of speaking, not accents per se. Sometimes outlandish accents fit perfectly within a story. Other times they can be distracting. So consider that when writing. Consider that when pushing that to your narrator. Thanks, V. All right, let's start with the basics. Standard issue gear for the professional storyteller. Microphones. As we continue to mourn together the recent loss of beloved actor, husband, and father, Philip Seymour Hoffman, a subject which is certainly still an open wound on the surface of many of our grieving hearts, let us take a moment now to adequately reflect on how you should never record on your computer's built-in microphone. This is what it sounds like. 
I know, sorry, that's a little insensitive. It's just that this is what it sounds like when you're indelicately leveraging Philip Seymour Hoffman's untimely death as a ploy for attention with proper equipment that costs only, oh, I don't know, maybe 150 bucks or so. And this is what it sounds like when you're a cheapskate and tactlessly leverage Philip Seymour Hoffman's tragic passing as a rotten ploy for attention with just your crappy computer mic. Hear the difference? How could you not? Heroin? Or, I mean, there are other reasons that one might not plane passing overhead, or your sinuses are stuffy. Maybe you're coming down with a cold. I don't know, there are lots of reasons you might not have been able to. Just, that was the first thing that, you were underwater maybe. Maybe a flip-flop came off or you found a cool sand dollar. But it should have been a pretty stark difference otherwise. I hate it when people send an audio like that. Briefly, because everyone involved in sound recording needs to know at least a little bit about mic types, let's go over them. The dynamic microphone. This is an industry workhorse, a mic that can take a good amount of abuse, both in the sense that you can drop them on the hard concrete as you're unpacking your gear, or right in front of Kesha as she prepares to molest the air. Chances are these mics will probably still continue to work, may God have mercy on our souls. They have a narrower frequency range and accentuate the mids. They're excellent for all kinds of situations where high volume is the name of the game, like rock singing, guitar amps, drums, and they'll get the job done just fine for voice acting too. The most popular dynamic mics are the Shure SM57 and the Shure SM58. I do most of my podcast recording on a 58. Condenser mics. Condenser mics tend to pick up a wider frequency range, and you'd probably want to use one of these to catch, for example, the most out of a full-range instrument, such as a piano or cello. These are more sensitive mics and respond well to abrupt or sudden changes in sound level. We call those transients. Think cymbal crashes or hard-strummed acoustic guitars, even the occasional voice actors and Condensers come in two sizes, small and large diaphragm. The larger have a fuller sound compared to the small ones, which are called pencil mics and reproduce the high frequency a bit more. Condenser mics need external power, or what the more paranormally inclined tend to call phantom power, to work. And they're often expensive. Luckily, there are a few budget condenser microphones out there for under a hundred bucks, like the awesome Audio-Technica AT2020 and the M-Audio Nova that can get you started. All right, the only other thing you really have to know about right now is mic directional patterns. There's several different types out there, but only two big main ones to concern yourself with now. Depending on the situation you find yourself in, you gotta know which directional pattern's best suited for the job. Directional mics, also called cardioid, which sounds like something big and radioactive that Japanese scientists would engineer to try and take out something else big and radioactive. I mean, (laughs) fool me once, huh guys? Directionals pick up sound from directly in front of them, and reject everything else coming back. Minimal side bleeding. Omnidirectional mics pick up sound from all around the mic head. They come in handy if you're recording something in a great sounding hall, or if you want to capture all the reflections of the room, or if you're trying to record sound effect settings or ambient atmospheres outside. So, which type should you get? You should probably have a solid dynamic and condenser mic, and a directional and omnidirectional, if you really want to take advantage of all the different strengths and cool things each mic can do. But if you're on a budget, a dynamic directional mic will probably get the job done just fine, or a large diaphragm condenser if money isn't that much of an object. Either way, they both sound better than this. 
There you go. Now you just need a way to plug that thing into your computer, or whatever you're working on. I'll assume it's a computer for the sake of time. Some mics come designed with a USB end, and 10 bucks says more and more of them will be that way in the future. But for now, you probably need some sort of interface to allow your mic to communicate with your computer and audio software, since most standard mics have XLR outs. Fortunately, there are audio interfaces, conveniently called audio interfaces, to get that job done. A good one that I use a lot is the PreSonus Audio Box. It runs a little over 100 bucks, but you can find cheaper ones with less inputs out there too. The advantage to using a good mic in conjunction with a versatile interface, rather than say, one of the USB mics, is A. You can adjust levels before they even get to your computer. B. You can record with several mics simultaneously. And C. And maybe the biggest of all, you can swap in and out various microphone types for various different types of projects. You know, if you start taking guitar lessons or something, you start out with some crappy-ass guitar at first, but if you wind up sticking with it, before you know it, it's ten years later and you've got twelve of the damn things laying around your house. And probably a couple of banjos, a zither, and something with bike spokes soldered to one end of a lamp that you made one night when you were high and call a lamp it needs a spool of tangled fishing line wrapped around one end to really jam on, which you keep meaning to pick up at the store, but never seem to get around to actually doing it, because, let's face it, you probably have your doubts that it'll turn out to be not an instrument in the end after all. But hey, that's okay. In order to shine like the sun, we must also be taught lessons in burning. And Hitler really did say that. Anyways, point of all that was... That's how mics become, if you give a shit about the way recorded things sound. You'll have them laying around everywhere, and you'll always be prepared for whatever comes your way. It's nice to have an external interface that allows you to leverage all that versatility. Alright, so you've got the right gear. Next point. There are two things that keep readers from delivering the best reads ever, in my opinion. Bad noise and bad readings. Bad noise is probably the single biggest tell of an amateur. And I'm not just talking about bad ambient room noise. I'm talking about plosives. Lip smacks. Vocal fry. Distractive breathing. Swallowing. Page turns. The list goes on. And it's easy to get freaked out by all the potentially negative things you can do with your face or mic to screw things up, and in the end you wind up with a safe but totally boring performance. My advice? You've got a good recording setup, you've got some main prerequisites in mind, that is, you're the right distance and angle to the microphone, and you're in an ideal quiet room. Don't worry about anything else that might take you out of balls-to-the-wall mode when you're dramatically reading a story. Just hear when those things happen, and be ready to spend plenty of time editing and doing retakes. The more you can identify and listen for the personal tics and hang-ups that you're usually susceptible to, the more you'll notice over time that you don't do them as much anymore. And that means less time at the editing table. But there are a few things you can do preventatively off the bat. Let's talk about those prerequisites real quick. You've got an ideal quiet room, and you're the right distance and angle from the mic. It's been said that infants up to six months old can only see the distance from their mother's loving eyes to that of her sweet, ever-heaving teats of bounty, where of course they abide in relentless suckling posture. I'd say it's a good analogy for podcasters and their microphones, too, as a general rule. Keep your microphone roughly boob level to the front of your face. Now that's base boob level, mind you. Should be something like 6 to 8 mammometers. Or if you're all hung up on imperial, 8 to 10 inches. <laughs> Americans. 
But Norm, my boobs are like the weird tubular kind in National Geographic, you might say. Or I'm a dude. Look, the ideal distance is going to vary based on all sorts of stuff. Mic type, voice type, project type, room type. You're going to have to experiment and listen with a discerning ear. But even more importantly, no matter however close or far you are to the mic, try to stay that same distance consistently throughout the project. It changes everything and is easy to forget between retakes. Decide on a consistent distance that reflects the full rich range of your voice with as little room space around it as possible, and then remember that distance from the microphone like it was your damn ATM code. Oh, and just as a side note, always have a pop filter over your mic head. It's a crucial accessory. I lost mine a couple weeks ago and have been putting a light wool sock over my mic head every time I need to record. It's not as good as the spongy soft material they make pop filters out of, of course, and it's got a pretty gross cat afterbirth stain on it, but it gets the job done. <clears throat> Moving on, because I know you're curious and this is no cat midwifery workshop. Talking closer to the mic, like I like to do, delivers a strong and direct frequency as opposed to talking farther back, and coupled with a good directional mic can also decrease interferences by pesky ambient background noise, like neighbors fighting over an alcohol problem or pets giving birth, children asking for love and reassurance. But it also highlights other types of bad noise, like mouse clicks, or noisy computer fans if you're too close to your setup, popping peas, Hey, Papa's panties are private, pal. And saliva management. Yeah, you like that, Hernandez? Or are you gonna talk? Cause I got all day. Recording space. I record most of the Drabblecast stuff in my living room. I just like the way my living room feels and sounds. It's home base. But if I have to change environments every now and then to keep the raving Drabble masses sated with regular portions of thick, nutrient-rich norm extract, then you gotta do what you gotta do. But commit to that space when you do. Don't be changing around a lot. No amount of EQ can replicate or patch together what you sound like wherever you are at this very moment in space-time. Keep it consistent. Rooms with more carpet, curtains, padding on the walls, than flat, hard, sound bouncy surfaces are best. You don't want to hear the room. You don't want to hear the voice actor. You want to hear the story. One way to try to cheat if you've got differential room ambiance coming through in your audio or between multiple voice actors is to record another layer of ambient room noise. Buff it up a smidge with some gain and EQ. String it out lightly in a track running parallel with your other patchy audio. This won't always fill in the potholes, but it does sometimes sand the edges a little bit, make the road a little less bumpy. You can also use music, of course, and supplementary sound to cover up voiceover inconsistencies or at least divert attention. But we'll get more into that in part two. And with that, friends, and ducks in friends' clothing up to no good, we conclude part one of the Drabblecast audio production workshop. We hope you've learned a thing or two and enjoyed yourself along the way. Tune in for part two, where we'll talk about production music, Foley effects, software, EQ, and the art of putting it all together. Until then, weirdos, Auf Wiedersehen! Welcome back to the Drabblecast Audio Fiction Production Workshop. 
This workshop is both a behind-the-scenes look at how we produce stories and audio at the Drabblecast, and also a primer for anyone out there interested in the wide, weird, wonderful world of audio fiction production. In this section, we go over dialogue editing, music and sound effects, EQ, mixing, and the art of putting it all together. And we answer some of your questions from Twitter and Facebook. That's a lot of ground to cover, so let's jump right in. Chapter 3, Dialogue Editing It's been said, in music, the space between the notes is just as important as the notes you actually play. Yeah, right, Norm's just setting himself up for another Hitler joke. No, no, my friends, it's true. Why else do you think they have a whole system set up in music that includes equal-valued rest symbols for every type of sounded note you can possibly play? Half-note rests, whole-note rests, double-dotted sixteenth-note rests. There's a directive for no sound akin to every actual sounded note. And God, I wish there was something similar in the storytelling performance world. In stories told out loud, as with music, the words you speak are no more important than the space between the words. It's hard, because most of us, especially in this speedy ADHD world we live in today, find sounded notes and sounded things much more interesting than boring old silence. Hell, silence can be downright intimidating. Why else do you think I fill most of my free time yammering into a microphone for the sake of the internet? If you've ever taught or taken music lessons before, you'll notice that counting rests is one of the hardest things for people to remember to do. People tend not to give a shit about negative space, and as a result, people tend to narrate stories too fast too, which is also understandable since your brain reads at a much faster rate than your mouth or ears. The average adult reading speed is around 300 words per minute, while the average adult is comfortable hearing and vocalizing words at half that rate, 150 to 180 words per minute, according to the rate that Random House Audio and other audiobook sources say is ideal for audible engagement. I'm just as jittery as the next narrator, so what I do first when I'm reading a story, to save myself time dialogue editing later on, is to sit down in front of the computer screen and add in my own equivalent of musical rests as absurd punctuation to a story's text. Commas, periods, semicolons, ellipses, ellipses after ellipses, they all help guide how much space to use between words, sentences, or longer passages, and I add them in to an excess. I even break up sentences or paragraphs onto different lines based on my interpretation of successful overall flow, and I print that out and use that as a guide when I'm first recording. And I say my interpretation of successful overall flow because other voice actors are often able to deliver successful passages with varied nuances in timing, color, and tone that I hadn't even thought of, but that still work great. But I'd still say that 95% of the time, as a producer, I have to do some degree of dialogue or narrative editing, uh, one out of every three to five sentences in someone else's audio, to be conservative. Most of the time, it's mostly a matter of just cleaning up instances of production sound, reusing a final consonant of one word to complete another where it's been obscured or something, or removing an actor's denture clicks, for example. But often, it's also about manipulating space. Here's an example of a narrator reading on the Drabblecast where space is edited for greater impact. Rock watched as Mother changed course, climbing up the wall of the canyon and up onto a soft yellow expanse. Grassland, whispered. 
There's your first one. Grassland whispered. No way to get that sounding natural. Just take out the word whisper. Don't even need the it. The sky sat heavy and blue over the grass. Mother slowed down. Mother slowed down. Should have been space there. pieces scooping up plants from the ground. Angular silhouettes. Give him a chance to scoop. What is that? Said Rock. Cities, Mother replied. Need space there. Your ancestors used to live there. But then the cities died. And they came to me. Too much. We entered an agreement. You would keep me company, and in exchange, Production noise there, some I tapping. would protect you until the world was a better place. Where are we going? Looking for a mate. Too little. I need fresh genetic material. My system is not completely self-sufficient. Oh. Rock's mouth fell open. Way too much, we're dragging. Are there... more of you? Rock watched as Mother changed course climbing up the wall of the canyon and up onto a soft yellow expanse. Grassland. The sky sat heavy and blue over the grass. Mother slowed down, her mouthpieces scooping up plants from the ground. Angular silhouettes stood against the horizon. What is that? said Rock. Cities, Mother replied. Your ancestors used to live there. But then the cities died and they came to me. Where are we going? Looking for a mate. I need fresh genetic material. My system is not completely self-sufficient. Oh. Rock's mouth fell open. Are there... more of you? That was the story Jagannath by Karen Tidbeck, and that was a pretty poignant part of the story. Remember, space equals pace. Dialogue can be edited to affect characterization. You can raise the volume and adjust tonal qualities to make, say, arch-villains sound more domineering or larger than life. It's the aural equivalent of someone invading your space by standing too close. You know one of those guys, right? Whether it's in regards to consistency, pacing, volume level, or tone, audio needs just as much proofing as text does. And even the best writers out there know your stories won't make it very far without lots of proofing. Dialogue and voiceover editing can be one of the more frustrating and detail-obsessed aspects of this whole gig, and you've got to make sure you don't get too much into your own head and screw up a good thing a narrator's already effectively got going on. At the same time, you've got to make sure the space between every word, every combination of words, is used effectively. Chapter 4. Music and Sound Effects Music so, this is a hot topic in audio fiction, to score or not to score. Remember what we said in part one about the experience being the most important thing? You don't have to have musical scoring or sound effects. In fact, it's a lot more work for you and you can often do more harm than good when trying. Ask yourself if the experience is a stronger and better one because of these additional layers. I use the present tense is because you should constantly be asking yourself this question with every sound effect or every musical cue you add. Music and effects can lend solidity and depth to the one-dimensional audio experience, certainly. The big difference between one-dimensional audio stories and two-dimensional film, though, is that in film, audiences rarely notice the soundtrack. In audio, you will notice the soundtrack. 
This isn't always a bad thing. Like I said, music really can add emotional depth and be evocative if you use it right. But you have to constantly ask yourself, not if audiences will notice your soundtrack, but to what extent will audiences notice your soundtrack? Will it come across as ham-fisted or emotionally sensitive and supportive to the text? Here's an example from Philip K. Dick's The Electric Ant. You decide. He examined his wristwatch. One minute passed, then a second, a third, and then. In the center of the room appeared a flock of green and black ducks. They quacked excitedly, rose from the floor, fluttered against the ceiling in a dithering mass of feathers and wings, and frantic in their vast urge, their instinct to get away. Ducks, Poole said, marveling. I punched a hole for a flight of wild ducks. Now something else appeared. A park bench with an elderly, tattered man seated on it, reading a torn, bent newspaper. He looked up, dimly made out Poole, smiled briefly at him with badly made dentures, and then returned to his folded back newspaper. He read on. Do you see him? Poole asked Sarah. And the ducks? At that moment, the ducks and the park bum disappeared. Nothing remained of them. The interval of their punch holes had quickly passed. They weren't real, Sarah said. Were they? So how? You're not real, he told Sarah. And from H.P. Lovecraft's The Outsider. Distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and panic, several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. At a casual inspection, the room seemed deserted, but when I moved towards one of the alcoves, I thought I detected a presence there, a hint of motion beyond the golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly. And then, with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause, I beheld in full, frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had by its simple appearance changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all... Next big question. Well, where do you get music to use? Three ways. One, you can make it yourself, which I as a musician have a fun time doing a lot of the time. Two, you can find and use free public domain music or music produced with a Creative Commons license from any number of sources online. RoyaltyFreeMusic.com, PodsafeAudio.com, MusicAlley.com, the Internet Archive's Community Audio Project is another great one. 
Or three, you can bust out the wallet and pay to license something, chuck out for an upfront advance and possibly rollover payments once you sell a certain amount of copies. You can find out who to pay by visiting the various Performing Rights Society websites, usually bmi.com, ascap.com, or possibly socan.ca, and determining which organization controls rights for the source material. BMI has a great searchable database to help you find this info. If you can't locate the song rights online, phone the Performing Rights Organization involved and ask for the song indexing department. Now, option three can wind up being a pretty expensive route to take. Licensing just one song or piece of music to be used non-commercially can sometimes land you anywhere between 250 to upwards of a thousand bucks in the hole, well out of the practical price range of most audio producers working independently on small budgets. But you should always attempt to seek clearance if you're using copyrighted material. You might have heard the old thing about how as long as you're only using a small segment of a particular piece, it's considered what they call fair use. This is bullcrap, although there are some legal precedents in using segments of copyrighted material under 15 seconds in other publicly distributed productions, it's wishy-washy terrain, and courts still look at these things in a case-by-case -case basis. It's up to copyright holders or their representatives to find and sue your sorry ass if they feel that you're encroaching upon their rights. And it's also a misconception that making arrangements of copyrighted material is okay. Maybe you want to do a U2 song, but arranged a cappella because you find it really helps take the edge off. <laughs> See what I... the edge? Nope, unless it's parody or in public domain, you have to get written consent from the old midget tinker controlling Bono's clockwork internally. Generally, when reviewing fair use compatibility, courts look at three things. Did you take a substantial amount of the original work? Did you transform the material in some large way? Did you cause significant financial harm to the copyright owner? And remember, the fair use doctrine is a defense, not an exception. Kind of like how freedom of speech only means you can't be jailed for it. You still have to be accountable for what comes out of your big, stupid, bigoted face. There are also stipulations like used for educational purposes. But again, securing sample rights from the copyright holder is the only guaranteed way to make sure you're using the content legitimately. Composing your own soundtrack or hiring a musician to add a custom score adds a significant amount of extra value to your story, and for obvious reasons it's usually the most effective to ensure your scoring complements the story and reading anyways. And if you're not musically inclined or don't have a keyboard or MIDI synthesizer, it's probably still cheaper to pay a musician buddy to compose and arrange an original score than to license something from BMI anyways. And also, like I said, there are tons of free, open-use, creative commons options out there. Although, I will add, there aren't limitless amounts out there. You'll hear the same sampled music reoccurring in other people's productions around the web, and be like, oh, there's that one again. So the more you're able to manipulate or transpose the music using a quality pitch modulator, the better. Let's move on. Sound effects. Now we're getting even further into audio drama territory, and I'm not sure I know anyone better equipped to talk about audio dramas and sound effects than Fred Greenhall, writer and producer of the apocalyptic radio drama The Cleansed. Hi, this is Fred from Final Room Productions. I am the creator of fully dramatized audio drama works, such as my post-apocalyptic serial The Cleansed. It's a podcast. Um, when I say fully dramatized, I mean full-on sound effects, music, and dialogue, uh, something that sounds more like a movie than a book read aloud, um, something kind of like this. And in that moment, it all came crashing down. The monster we tempted lashed out. Behind 
the canoe! Grab the canoe! John! Oh, get off! I'm under the canoe! Come here! Uh, so what you hear there are actors who were recorded outside in the world with a portable sound recorder. I put them in actual canoes on an actual lake and then waded into the water and had them shout their lines as I shook the canoe up and down to simulate the effects of whitewater rapids. So the screams of terror are in some part real. So that sequence is part of season two of The Cleansed. Uh, The characters are trying to navigate a series of whitewater rapids in canoes. It's a world where there's not a lot of technology or else they would take a plane or a boat or pretty much anything, uh, but they have to nearly uh, drown themselves in order to get through to a certain part of the adventure. So it is a little different and unconventional to record in this way. Uh, Most people uh, who do this kind of work record in a studio or bar that they record in a room as quiet as possible uh, following some of the tips that Norm gave last time um, just you know try to get into a quiet room try to get rid of sound weird noises uh, but I find that I like to take the actors out into the real world um, giving uh, that using acoustic environments kind of like what you would call for in the script uh, gives this kind of realism that's hard to replicate in the studio um, especially for uh, scenes like this one ones that were recorded outside. Now, not every script calls for this. Uh, scripts set in outer space, you know, it is hard to find spaceships just to fly around and uh, castles and, and things like that. But if you have access to the world and actors who are a little bit crazy like you, you might be able to pull it off. Um, you know, you can try to accomplish some of these things uh, working with uh, sort of what they call dry sound, just uh, studio recorded sound in the post, post-production, um, like on my editing program here. I can uh, just go ahead and add some EQ to my voice. I can make it sound like <clears throat> I'm inside a bathroom. That's weird in here. How about, <clears throat> uh, let's, uh, yeah. Okay, uh, let's get into a really large hall. <laughs> okay, that's big. Like, really, really big. You know, to me, uh, EQ always makes it sound like you are in a massive cathedral, which to me is a little distracting. Let's turn that um yeah, let's turn that off. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, and so instead, uh, you can also uh, take the angle, like leave your EQ as is. We'll maybe add a little bit of uh, breath to it and uh, go ahead and, and add a little bit of a track in the background. And suddenly you feel like, ah, nice early morning in Africa here with all my birds. Just gives you a sense of, you know, being out there in the world. Um, and it's a lot easier to record your own sound effects and ambiences than it used to be, uh, regardless of whether or not you actually take actors out there or not. Um, the people who first did record field recording had these massive reel-to-reel recorders that weighed 50 to 60 pounds you had to lug around. Now you can get nice flash recorders for as little as 100 or 200 bucks. Just go out there, uh, point your microphone at something, hit the record button, and uh, try to watch your levels, meaning don't uh, overdrive the microphone. And uh, you might have some usable material. Um, you can even get little uh, gadgets for your iPhone. Um, so you really don't really have an excuse not to use the real world. Um, I go through a lot of new audio drama plays are sent to me. I also run an anthology podcast called Radio Drama Revival, and I hear a lot of the same old sound effects and music from the same old free online libraries. Everybody else knows about those too. You're not a special angel in that regard. Um, so if I hear the same sound effect, like the marine dying from StarCraft, I know exactly where you got that sound effect, and I am no longer paying attention to your story. I'm now uh, been pulled out of the story world. This is not an idle threat. Uh, in my opinion, uh, to the extent that you can go out and record 
your own sounds and use them, you're going to have a sound piece that's more uniquely yours, has your uh, stamp on it, and is not going to sound like everybody else's work. Um, that being said, I do not actually shoot the actors. Uh, things like helicopters, chase scenes in cars, uh, going underneath the ocean into submarines, nuclear explosions, etc., are probably best sourced from libraries. Uh, but you can still add your own uh, signature and flair to it by taking the sound effect, uh, trying to use some EQ to maybe make it sound a bit like the space that's called for in your sound recording. Um, you can maybe uh, make it go backwards or use other effects to sort of put your own signature on it. <laughs> So really what I'm getting at is that uh, you do not have the excuse of saying, well, I don't have any expensive studio to record stuff, Fred. I can't record good audio drama. And that's crap. You can use the world as your studio, my friend. Go out there, get a recorder, go out and do it. I think you also need to start thinking beyond just the sound effects to the sound affects, just to be a little grammar nerd here. Uh, sound affects, meaning you have a choice. When you say door close, you can do this. Or you can do this. You now have done two very different things in your audio production depending on that creative choice. Um, now, Norm spoke in the uh, first installment of audio fiction production about how the Drabblecast chooses stories for audio when the story calls out to be told in audio. There's something special about the story that makes it a good fit for audio. And I think sound effects are kind of the same thing. Um, when a good sound effect is called for, they can really muscle their way out of the script and, and jump into the sound design and really help propel the story forward. They are not just something you add for pizzazz, but they really are as much a character as your characters. For example, I can tell you that... It was a dark and stormy night. The thunder rumbled in like the backfire of a diesel engine as the bare lightning revealed the werewolf who howled in blood-curdling rage across the unsuspecting land. Or I can just do this. So, which approach do you like better? Which fits best for your production? That's going to be your personal call. It's going to be different based on uh, your taste, your listeners' tastes, the aesthetics of the script. That's not for me to say, just to sort of give you some ideas. Uh, some stories are great just the way they're written. The, the prose really just pops off the page. Uh, but sometimes that proper sound effect can just show, not tell something in audio and give you that clear mental picture of what's going on. So if, for example, you're working on an audio script and you've got, got a line like, Gee whiz, Jane, that bullet just almost hit you. You can just do this instead. <laughs> and see if it accomplishes the same thing, but even better. And yeah, anyways, the, the final thing I was going to mention is... Uh, oh, oh shit. I think... I think, uh... I think it's a pterodactyl. Yeah? Uh, Alright, uh, sorry. I gotta, gotta, gotta go record this thing. Uh, so... Where are we finished? Yeah, this is uh, Fred from Radio Drama Revival, The Cleansed, and Final Room Productions, three podcasts, all for free. Check it out. Audio drama adventure. And I'm going to send a list of some low-cost portable recorders and some website links to Norm to get you started. And... Oh, I'll go. Thanks, Fred. Fred does a good job in his productions of not overdoing it. The soundtrack of real life is way too dense for film even, much less audio productions. In the real world, our minds select certain noises and filter out others. For example, we mentally foreground the person speaking to us even if the background is louder. In audio production, the sound effects editor and mixers have to do that focusing for us.
Selected sounds can create tension, atmosphere, and emotion. You have to try to abstract the essential quality of a sound and figure out the best way to record that, which may not even be to use the thing itself. In Ben-Hur, the sound of a whip cracking was actually a huge raw steak being slapped against a thigh. King Kong's voice was the roar of a lion from the San Diego Zoo, played backwards. For the sound of the knife entering the body in Psycho's shower scene, Hitchcock did a blind sound test among different types of melons, finally settling on a cassava. You get to be really creative with this shit. Either way, it's important to remember that sound effects, like music, have pitch, rhythm, and pace, which must be varied to create interest and can be manipulated to raise and lower dramatic tension. Equalizing, balancing, blending, that all has a lot to do with making music and effects work well, rather than detract from your audio. But we'll get more into that later. For now, we bring you... Chapter 5. Software. So, before we get further into this, we should hit on DAWs a little bit, or the Digital Audio Workstation. If you're going to work with audio on a computer, you're most certainly going to be working with a DAW, the sequencer program or software you need to record, edit, mix, and arrange your audio parts and move them around easily. There are a lot of options out there for sequencing software, and we just don't have the time to go through the ins and outs of all of them here. The good news is, though, that they all pretty much allow you to do the same thing and are pretty much laid out the same way. The performance information that you place on a track, your narration, your sound effects, whatever, it's all mapped out on a timeline, a space in which time is displayed horizontally while the number of tracks you've got going are displayed vertically. When you press play, a vertical line called a playhead moves through the song from left to right, and when it reaches an event within a track, the associated sound is heard. To adjust the volume of each of your tracks, your DAW also contains a mixer, and each track's channel strip has its own way of manipulating volume, panning left to right in stereo, adding effects, compression, noise reduction, all that good stuff. Like I said, there's no possible way to keep this workshop at a reasonable length and go into all the specifics of every type of audio sequencing software. Suffice it to say, there are some basic, easy-to-figure-out, cheap, and even free programs that bear mentioning. Audacity, Cakewalk, and Acid are two that immediately come to mind if you use Windows. Also, Adobe Audition is a pretty solid piece of freeware in its own. And there's even Linux Multimedia Studio if you're one of those dudes. If you've got a Mac, you've got arguably the most user-friendly DAW out there already bundled on your computer, a program called GarageBand. I use it frequently for the Drabblecast, in addition to Logic Pro, which is kind of a more fleshed-out, expanded version. Then you've got what we'll call your higher-tier DAWs. More complex and multifaceted options like Logic, Reaper, Cubase, or Pro Tools. These offer a lot more options, a lot more flexibility, but obviously require a lot more education to master the ins and outs of. But the time you're going to spend tinkering, reading tutorials, and getting acquainted with whatever program you use is well worth it, because knowing how to run your recording, mixing, and editing software is at the very heart of all of this. General advice, choose a DAW that has a lot of users. The more people that use the same DAW as you, the more support that's available out there. And don't settle. You want something that's going to help you correctly capture your art, music, your story experience. Don't pick something just because you think it's easy. They're all easy. It just takes a little time and dedication. All right, and if you thought that was nerdy enough, now we get to the really nerdy and intense stuff. Chapter 6. EQ, mixing, and the art of putting it all together. 
There are not many audio nerds I know better equipped to introduce the idea of EQ and how sound works than Brian Lincoln, audio producer of the Full Cast podcast and notorious whiskey thief of bitchy chicks at cons. Take it away, Brian. Hi, this is Brian Lincoln, notorious whiskey thief from bitchy chicks rooms at cons, here to talk about the art of mixing and balancing EQ. Let's start with EQ. To do that, we need to think about sound. Sound waves are pressure waves. What matters is how the air molecules move in space. Your speakers create these pressure waves by moving a slightly cone-shaped diaphragm back and forth, jostling the air locally, which sets up waves of pressure, high-low, 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 depending on the characteristics of the movement of that diaphragm. Conversely, a microphone senses these pressure waves much like a human ear can, only without as many limitations. The microphone will convert this information into an electrical signal, which you see in your DAW, or digital audio workstation, as amplitude over time. When you play the file, your speakers convert the electrical signal back into pressure waves. Now the thing to understand about human perception of sound is that a single point on the plot of amplitude over time doesn't sound like anything. It's how the amplitude changes that we perceive. A single periodic sine wave sounds like a boring and probably pretty annoying tone. This is what a single frequency sounds like at 490 hertz, or 490 oscillations per second. If you combine many of these together, you get the characteristics of certain kinds of instruments or each person's unique voice. This is the beauty of what's called a Fourier transform. Any wave shape can be broken down into a number of periodic sine waves that have been added together. And as a side note, this is what a synthesizer does. It digitally builds or synthesizes sounds, often out of basic periodic wave shapes. Now, if we play with a volume control of specific frequencies, we can adjust how something sounds, so we can turn down frequencies that contain background noise. We can adjust others to tweak how someone sounds. For example, boost low frequencies for a bassier sound to a voice. We can also add clarity by lowering noisier frequencies that occur within a voice-slash-microphone combination. You can hunt for them by boosting certain narrow ranges of frequency until you find a particularly bad-sounding range, which you then reduce relative to the clearer frequencies. This is subtle, but it makes a huge difference, especially for singers. It should also be noted that the human vocal range, while different for each person, will typically range from 300 hertz to 3400 hertz. So you can pretty safely remove lower than 300 hertz frequencies dramatically without having an effect on the voice. Lots of noise occurs here at the lower end, so it's something I always do. It's also worth noting that the human ear can detect a range of about 20 to 20,000 hertz, so anything outside of this range is pointless information. Tweaking it does nothing. Well, maybe to your pet. The other thing to note about human hearing and frequencies is that we are very good at hearing multiple frequencies simultaneously, but not good at discerning two sounds that share frequencies. Proper mixing takes advantage of this. You can have multiple instruments or a voice alongside music or a sound effect sound wonderful together if they don't compete. Think of car commercials, with a deep crystal clear voiceover coupled with some super loud music. Now think of a crappy podcast you've heard where the music came on and you couldn't understand the speaker anymore. This is called mud, when one sound overwhelms another. This is why white noise is particularly bad. White noise is an ever-changing random combination of frequencies. This is why it is very difficult to remove certain kinds of noise. It covers everything. By giving only certain frequencies to cymbals, drums, bass, 
and lowering those ranges significantly in other instruments, music can better share the available range and be clearly heard. Our ears can tell them apart at the same time. So when using music and effects when a voice needs to be clear and understandable, try pulling down just the vocal frequencies in those competing sounds, while leaving them high outside of the vocal range. And you can have both without one of them sounding far away, as lowering volume tends to do. Play it by ear. Make sure the voice has the priority. That was an example of EQ in the final mix. On another mixing note, compression is very important. I cannot stress this to beginners enough. While you can work to make your production sound amazing, some people will listen on crappy headphones. Others will be in the car, a source of a lot of white noise you must compete with. You want to have consistent volume. Too much range in the low end will not be audible at all to some listeners. This is your fault, not theirs. Pan too much to the left or right, and the person with one earbud will think you screwed up and forgot to lay in someone's lines, or that your volume was way off in one track. Look at your final waveform. It should have no big spikes and no extended dips in volume. Also, it should have no huge left and right differences, though some are okay and can sound great. Whether you max at minus 3 decibels or minus 6 decibels or whatever you choose, you should be hitting that max all the time without going over and without clipping. Learn compression. It's paramount to good sound. And spiky audio can actually injure people's ears. They will never forgive you. They will avoid anything you produce. Voice actors, do not use EQ or compression on your raw audio that you're recording and sending to a producer unless they ask for it. It's best to wait till post-production for these effects to be used. If you have a recording device or a mixer that has an EQ adjustment, keep your EQ at all ranges flat. If you have a compression knob or button, have it off if possible. What we want as producers is to have clean, clear, flat sound that we can manipulate however we want in order to layer in effects and things like that. Your concern should not be specifically how you equalize your voice when you send it to someone like me. It should be record as clean as you possibly can and focus on your performance. It's our job to make you sound good. So that's it on EQ and mixing. There's other cool effects to know about, like delays, reverb, EQ tricks for positioning a voice in space. But for most, the focus should be to know what frequencies people can hear, reduce noisy frequencies from your voice track to make them more clear, let effects and background music be similar in volume, but keep them primarily outside the vocal range to avoid muddiness, and compress your performances to a consistent volume. Learn to do this to each voice track and to your final mix. Remember, I steal whiskey from bitchy chicks rooms at cons. You do not want to know what I do to someone who blows out my eardrum. But I bet it's hot. Thanks, Brian. Mixing is an art, the same way that anything's an art, now that people are menstruating on walls and calling it art. I happen to consider mixing a far more sophisticated form of art personally, but then again, I have no idea how menstruation works, much less targeted projectile menstruation onto a vertical wall space. So who am I to judge? I'm not even very good at billiards. But I am a little more comfortable talking on the subject of mixing and layering audio fiction. Dialogue and voice are the backbone of your sound. That much is obvious, right? Everything else has to fit in place under and around the narrator's voice. And as Brian said, EQ has a lot to do with that. 
For this reason, you really have to divide each layer of your scoring, sound effects, and supporting audio into individual tracks, making them as independently controllable as possible so you can later massage them in such a way that they fit seamlessly together with the reading and with each other. Here's an example of a story, Teddy Bears and Tea Parties, by S. Boyd Taylor, that's very convoluted. It has at this point in the story 24 simultaneous tracks. Just a few more steps. Get past the couch. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Shadows move on the mantelpiece and the end tables. She freezes. The family pictures are moving. Brass frames buckling into bow-shaped mouths. They want to eat her. Don't be scared. Of course they're hungry. Everything must eat, and there isn't much food. One picture has starved to death. She knows because it doesn't move. Only dead things are still. The picture is of Angie. Eyes like blue diamonds, all straw hair and smiles, having a tea party with the teddy bears. Before the magic came back. Before everything came alive. The stairs creak and sag under her feet. One even whines like a hungry dog. Shh, she tells it. I'll feed you later. Creak, the stairs say again. She hears footsteps in the hall. Soft whooshes on the rotten rug that sound like a tiny voice whispering, Murder. Murder. Her stained hand grips the banister so hard, her bones hurt. When she crawls into the attic, she... Here's another example of a very busy production, The Last Great Clown Hunt by Chris First. What about the other captives? Demanded Crosswhite. Keaton turned to slip Catelyn away from the camp, but a small knot of clowns in unfamiliar dress blocked them and began launching themselves off the teeter-totter, all the while keeping a flight of nine pins in the air. Crosswhite panicked and fired at Billy Boy. The bullet grazed the chief's scalp. The clowns surrounded their leader for a moment, then turned as one, whooping and honking and attacking us. <laughs> We ran downhill toward the cover of the trees. I looked back and saw Runs with Scissors tear off his ringmaster trousers. The shaman was strapped into a giant pair of red scissors. He stalked to the funhouse and pulled on a tasseled cord. The false front of the funhouse fell forward, revealing the hostages in cramped cages behind a display of fireworks. Clowns were stuffing hostages 20 to a Volkswagen Beetle, torching the tires and sending the cars hurtling towards us. The cars burst into flames and smashed into the trees. Burning bodies spilled out onto the ground. There was nothing we could do for them. Keaton held up two title cards. Watch out. Pinch your movement. But it was too late. Swooping down the brow of the hill, a unit of berserker clowns snapped giant clacking pinchers. They pierced the unfortunate camera crew again and again, even after they were dead. Only Keaton's quick shooting kept us alive. I don't know how we did it, but we began to get the better of them. Dead and wounded clowns littered the earth. Runs with scissors was gravely wounded, and his scissors shattered. 
A handful of stilt dancers and berserkers gathered around him, chanting the death dirge. The old shaman pulled a Zippo lighter out of his hat, flicked it open, and tossed it into the fireworks. Under the big top, brothers. Under the big top. Keaton and I looked at each other. For the first time I could recall, he raised his right eyebrow. In his hand was a title card. Duck. The funhouse burst asunder in a shower of jagged shards and shrieking rockets and fiery wigs. Shot from cannon rode the back of a red Molotov before he too blew up in the afternoon sky. Snaggletusk's skull landed five feet from our hiding place. The big top caught fire, its flaming canvas moaning like a dying animal. Random bottle rockets ignited the sideshows, and the entire circus burned to the ground. Dinky, unchained, fled past us into the Badlands. We limped back to our field camp, a clearing in a glade of aspens. We fell exhausted and lay in grim repose. There's an auto-mix feature offered in DAWs that will harness the power of magical hamsters that spin mysterious wheels in your computer or something to figure out a good balance of comparative track volume and save you a lot of time. And yes, in more advanced software with really great auto-mix plugins, this can sometimes be the difference between your project taking you hours or days to complete. But for the record, I never use them. I like to hand mix. I don't know, it's a psychological thing. And to be honest, I think it's more than that. The software just doesn't have the creative soft skills and nuance capability to guarantee the experience. It might mix the music low enough to where it doesn't get in the way of the narration, make sure there aren't enough spikes or drops in a main or background track, but it also doesn't perfectly shape all those subtle musical instances of swell and decay that really fortify the drama of the piece. And if it doesn't do that, what's the point? It's great for some things, giving hamsters exercise for one, but the listening experience is a human one, and so, as time-consuming as it is, I really think so must the mixing process be. In my last CD, The Esoteric Order of Sherman, there was only one song that we used auto-mixing on tracks, the song The Heartache Over Innsmouth, and guess which one I still obsess over the most when I listen all these years later. All bass isn't right here, or voice is too soft here. It's that one, the, the heartache over Innsmouth. You should have guessed that. I framed the whole sentence under the assumption you would. And like Brian said, mixers have a number of tools. Equalizers and filters, for example, can boost or decrease the intensity of low, middle, or high frequencies in order to make dialogue or sound effects match those that came from microphones and sources with different characteristics. Your EQ balance and variety of compression options also have a lot to do with how some of your audio layers shrink back or pop out in higher relief. It's not all about volume. Sounds can be emotionally effective even when they're reduced to near inaudibility and the most eloquent sound of all just might be silence. In this age of dense soundtracks, the sudden absence of noise can have a pretty stunning impact. Can you remember which scene this was in Silence of the Lambs, just from the way the audio was handled?
great example of what we've been talking about, the way the scoring builds up and just completely drops out, leaving only one critical sound effect in the foreground, repeating like a metronome, controlling pace, building up tension through understatement, rather than in-your-face scary violins and other typical horror movie trappings. Mixing takes a lot of time, especially if your production is really dense with a lot of parts. But it's time you have to invest if you want to fully bring out a story's unique character through full audio production. Chapter 7. Q&A. We asked listeners on Facebook and Twitter if they had any questions for us about the Drabblecast or audio production in general, and we got some pretty good ones. Thomas Orbitson from our Facebook page asks, Do you have any good post-production workflow editing tips? What about noise filters and filters for effects? Tying into this, Graham Dunlop, audio producer of the Cast of Wonders podcast, also asks about noise reduction, how much, how little to apply. That's a great question, and one we probably should have talked about more in the workshop. Noise filters are commonly used to eliminate unwanted room noise or steady frequencies in the background of a recording, such as the buzz of an air conditioner. And here to talk about the subject and more, with only the occasional fecal segue, we bring you Scott Andrews from the Beneath Ceaseless Skies podcast. Hi there, I'm Scott H. Andrews, editor and publisher of Beneath Ceaseless Skies, the online magazine that specializes in fantasy set in other worlds, invented worlds or alternate Earth or historical Earth or weird Western or steampunk, we've been a finalist for the Hugo and three World Fantasy Awards. We podcast about half our stories, and our BCS Audio Fiction podcast has been a finalist for two Parsec Awards. I'm the director of our podcast, and the audio editor, and engineer, and the primary narrator. There are lots of plugins that do a great job at noise reduction, but there's always a trade-off with the sound artifacts that those plugins inevitably leave. My view on noise reduction is the ancient maxim, you can't polish a turd. If your original recording is full of noise, then noise reduction can mitigate it or improve it some, but it's never going to get it sounding as good as if the original recording had been nice and quiet with a low noise floor. You can't polish a turd. Spend some time on the ounce of prevention at the start, trying to make sure that you don't lay a turd in the first place. Get your levels set in the butter zone, not too loud, but not so way quiet because you're paranoid about overloads that even your shouting doesn't top minus 20 dB. And those well-set levels will save you a pound of turd polishing on the back end. Damn, a pound of turds. But there's always eventually a situation where turds happen, or you've been sent audio that peaks at minus 80 dB, or was tracked next to Niagara Falls, or was digitized off an old cassette tape of a bootleg dead show that had been dubbed a hundred times already, and you have no choice but to use noise reduction. My approach when it comes to turd polishing is to go easy, be sparing, use enough noise reduction to tame things, to improve them, but don't be relentless and try to suck every bit of noise out. When you try to suck out all the noise, noise reduction algorithms leave audible artifacts. For auditions noise reduction, the artifacts sound metallic, like a robot voice, or like the computer noises from old 50s sci-fi movies. Here's an example from BCS Podcast Episode 71, To the Gods of Time and Engines, a gift by Dean Wells. I had to alter the original audio to give it a bunch of noise for this example, 
because my original recording was nice and clean, so I wouldn't have to do any turd polishing. This first section has the extra background noise that I added. To the Gods of Time and Engines, a gift by Dean Wells. Cecily liked to hurt things. This second section has Adobe Audition's noise reduction run at 100%. She didn't know why. Sometimes a disorder of the mind just happened, and the ghosts in the machines had claimed her as their own. Did you hear those little artifacts that sounded metallic? This section has the noise reduction run at 50%. Likes became rituals, and rituals became worship, in the service of the clockwork deities as twisted as she. See how there are way fewer artifacts? There's still some noise, but it's lower, and it doesn't have those artifacts. Being gentle with your turd polishing will keep you from introducing artifacts, but the best strategy is to minimize the noise in the first place. Here's my original recording of that podcast in the example, where I set my levels good at the beginning and kept the noise low. It was the last lingering hour before twilight when the offering came due once again, but Cecily had lost track of the day and cursed her misfortune for it. Another type of post-production processing, probably the most common one, is compression. Compression squashes the high, loud peaks in your narration in order to smooth out the peaks and valleys in the sound. Smoothing the levels enables you to boost the audio as loud as possible in your file. Ever notice how rock records always sound louder on your MP3 player than most podcasts? That's because music audio is compressed when the record is mastered. You do want to use some compression to lower the high peaks so that you can boost the overall volume of your podcast as loud as possible, but many podcasters pour on the compression so much that you can hear ducking artifacts kicking in. Ducking happens when the compression squeezes down on a really loud peak, then pulls back after that peak has passed by. That hard squash, followed by the release, creates the ducking artifact, a sort of choke and release in the sound. Here's an example from BCS Podcast Episode 100, Boat in Shadows Crossing, by Tori Truslow, read by Rajan Khanna, which was a finalist for the Parsec Award last year. For this example, I cranked the compression up way higher than I would ever use to get some ducking artifacts that we could hear. Boat in Shadows Crossing by Tori Truslow Come, let me whisper you a tale of the city where I was born. Hear the sort of fluctuations in the volume level? That's the compressor ducking. The way I try to avoid ducking artifacts is by going easy on the compression first and then using a different plug-in to get my final levels as loud as possible, a hard limiter. It chops off all the peaks above whatever level you set. It can cause milder ducking effects, especially if you set your chopping level too low, but it works great to chop off the high peaks, leaving you enough room to boost the overall level like by using a normalized plug-in, and make your narration sound louder. Here's that example from BCS episode 100 again, Boat in Shadows Crossing by Tori Truslow, with the way over-compressed bit repeated first, 
then a section that was lightly compressed and hard-limited. Come, let me whisper you a tale of the city where I was born, the town where salt plums grow, a summer tale, dark and succulent. Hear how they are the same loudness, but the hard-limited section doesn't have those volume fluctuation sounds from the ducking, and it sounds much more natural. Again, with compression or hard-limiting, you can't polish a turd. That's why I try to keep my levels as consistent as possible when I'm doing a narration. I never get really quiet or really loud. Instead, I try to suggest whispering or shouting using the tone of my voice, not so much my volume. That helps keep the levels of the whole narration consistent, which makes it easier to compress or hard limit without lots of ducking artifacts. So that's a handful of tips and tricks that I use in producing the Beneath Ceaseless Skies podcast. If you want to hear those episodes I used in the examples, or more of the Beneath Ceaseless Skies audio fiction podcast, check us out on iTunes or at beneath-ceaseless-skies.com. Cheers. Logan Waterman from Facebook asks, How does one audition to do narrations for the Drabblecast? Well, Logan, I'm glad you asked. With the Drabblecast, as for with other fiction podcasts I'm aware of, you should have a short 30-second to one-minute demo prepared that lets us hear your voice type. Don't go crazy with accents, impressions, or whatever. Don't surround yourself with a bunch of production music or distracting sounds. We really just want to hear what your voice sounds like, what your recording equipment sounds like, and that you can read well. Email it to editor at drabblecast.org. Most markets have an email address that they prefer to receive voice auditions and include a short cover letter with notable experience and also any accents, dialects, styles, etc. that you might specialize in. It's that easy. Hugh O'Donnell and Marguerite Kenner both ask from Twitter, what's your process of finding and using background music and sound effects for your finished recordings? Do you have a running list of them as you read the story so they're incorporated as you build the episode, or do you assemble the introductions and narrations and then go back and post the music and effects in separately? What do you look for when you're locating ambient sound? Great question. Personally, I like to have a mostly finished take of a reading before I start applying music or sound effects. I listen to the take several times while reading along with the story, marking sound edits and musical cues along the way. I have three colored pencils, light green, blue, and red, and I underline and mark passages with the light green pencil that have particularly light flow or character to them, usually more brisk and non-dramatic. I mark the parts with a slower pace, cooler or somber mood, heavier, pointy with blue, and the parts that have action, movement, conflict, and tension with red. Sometimes I have parts marked up with two or even all three of the colors, and who the hell knows what that means. Then I record or select and layer in music scoring and effects in about five-minute chunks, shaping them by mood, texture, and length to the temperament and entry and end points of each narrative section. Then I go back and either edit or re-record sections of the narration to better align with some of the idiosyncrasies in the score. A high violin might enter right when a tender, softly spoken passage begins, covering up or distracting from the words, moving it a little to the left or the right on the channel strip timeline, and ducking out that violin a little quicker fixes the problem. 
I use ambient sound when, A, I've decided a story will be produced with music and ambient sound. I rarely have sound just drop in somewhere randomly halfway through a story. It's either all or nothing, usually. And B, when a section just feels empty without it. It's hard to explain, but based on whatever momentum you've established in the previous section of a story, and where you think you're going in the next, a three or four paragraph segment of a story can either sound fine, stripped of all but narration, or kind of empty. I also use ambient sound swells and music solely as section dividers, or instances in a story when time or perspective shifts. It helps transition the tone, where otherwise the change might be a little jarring or confusing in audio. Jillian on Twitter asks, Norm, do they make tiny headphones for pigeons who are self-conscious about their head bobbing up and down all the time and want to make it look like they're listening to music? I'm thinking of starting a company. Excellent question, Jillian. Not to my knowledge. And if you want to set up and run your own company, it's none of my business. <laughs> you see what... Yeah. The Mad Hatcher on Twitter asks, Norm, sorta audio-related question here. I hear voices in my head. What should I do? Well, my friend, do what I do. Just choose the smartest, funniest, most attractive one, and call it you. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude the Drabblecast Audio Fiction Production Workshop. We hope you learned a smidge and otherwise had a good time. I wish you luck in your future audio production endeavors. Remember, anyone can do it. You just have to believe in yourself. And why stop there? Build a religion around yourself. Canonize your quotidian tasks and build idols of yourself in your favorite outfits. And don't forget to use a pop filter. Till next time, folks, this is Norm Sherman.